And tonight I want to talk about this, uh, as John Wellwood, he uses the phrase in this article, I think it was in Shambhala uh, magazine a while back, called Relationships as Spiritual Crucibles. Intimate Relationships as a Spiritual Crucible. Yeah, and was uh, and this is on our webpage uh, from the Shambhala Sun magazine. But uh, just anybody want to share anything about the meditation before we go on? Notice the grievance patterns? Yeah. Andre. Yeah. Everybody here, Andre? I think one of the problems, this is where um, samadhi comes in, because when the mind's relatively even and relaxed and peaceful, then when those older, deeper patterns express themselves, and it may not have anything to do with some old wound, it may be just the pattern is expressing itself because the mind is bored. So it's the mind's relationship to boredom or knee pain or something really simple and immediate. But because of the relative evenness of the mind, when that pattern arises, it's easier to recognize it. When we're in the sort of the sticky and messiness of our ordinary conscious habits, um, patterns, or conditioned patterns, I should say, not conscious patterns, uh, conditioned patterns, then like exactly as you described, it's muddy. It's hard to it's hard to recognize what it is because in a sense, we're looking at the pattern from the muddy state itself or the confused state itself or the reactive place itself. So it's hard to understand what's going on. And this is why relationships are so difficult because even though we may have a a real motivation to clear up things between us and to get to the bottom of it. But the, in a sense, the harder mind I'm bringing to that reconciliation or that honest attempt to work things out in my relationship with you. But the fact is that the mind or the heart that's showing up to do that work is being pushed around by these unseen patterns, these basic grievance patterns, these old wounds and all the patterns that the, you know, relatively inefficient patterns we have of dealing with the pain of those old wounds. It's all pushing us around. I mean, I, I see so much, like the pattern that came, one of the patterns that came to mind tonight as I was leading us through this reflection was uh, just the basic pattern of um, 
dealing with sticky situations where I have power and uh, and I notice like in those and and there's some choice that needs to be made or some problem that needs to be resolved and I have some responsibility and power I have to make a choice and my choice has an impact on people you know and uh, I don't want to make a mistake I want to make the right choice and I want everybody to like me See, so it's impossible that situation, and uh, and and then the the thing that's so disturbing for my mind is, it's like the the harder I look, you know, like looking for the right answer, the more I see that I don't know. I really don't know. I don't see the right thing to do. And yet the situation is asking for a choice to say something, and even not saying something, like putting it off. Like That was my response, like put off things until you have some clarity. But that itself is a choice. That has implications. So there's no way around that responsibility. And I don't like that. I don't like kind of the setup of that. So my mind gets tight and uh, looking for safety where there isn't really any. And this is what I think John Wellwood and others mean by the crucible. I actually looked up that word. It's sort of interesting. So it's some kind of a container where you melt metals or other substances, you know, with a high heat, of course. And uh, so you can, uh, like, uh, maybe sometimes make something new out of that in that crucible, uh, different elements coming together, and then maybe something new will come out of it. Or a test. You're testing. So, like, what happens when we heat these things up like this? And so, these grievance places, which perhaps is any kind of intimate relationship with a sibling, with a friend, with a sexual partner, with whatever, to see them as these crucibles that, because of the commitment, like when we're in relationship with a brother or sister, you know, it's not like we easily leave it behind or we're attracted to another person and we have this, you know, sexual relationship. You know, there's something that keeps us in it or we work together. So there's something that keeps us in it or we come to the same spiritual community. So there is this place where we meet. And then if we see it as a crucible, like, well, this will be interesting to see what comes up when I'm in relationship with this other person. I think so, Andre, that's bringing that up. Anything else from the guided meditation tonight that seems relevant to bring up? Yeah, Casey. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, that's the crucible where good things happen. Not not hap- not that not happening, but that happening and the mind leaving it alone in a sense. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I and and it's really, you know, we'll spend the next couple of weeks really um trying to understand more directly the experience of intimacy. And so we can all check out Casey's hypothesis. Is intimacy as simple as the continuity of mindful presence? Because it's really like that that suggestion or that way of thinking about it, it's more not so much about trying to be intimate, but seeing what comes up to get in the way, what breaks the continuity. And like my efforts, going back to my example, my effort to want to do it right, that's a self-construction that gets in the way of the continuity of awareness. So if I don't see that in the moment, that desire to not want to make a mistake, that identification with being the guy who wants to do it right, or who's supposed to do it right, or who's supposed to know what's right and what's wrong, who's supposed to be able to see the right way, who shouldn't be confused about what's right or wrong in this situation. See, that identity, the the identification with that breaks the continuity. But there is a possibility for my mind, more in hindsight than in the moment, but at least in hindsight to see that it is okay to be the one who doesn't know. Like, that's okay. Partly because it's the way it is, right? So, can that be okay? Yeah, that can be okay. Like, who's to say that I should know? Or that there should be clarity? Or that there is even, you know, a right or wrong? That's, that even that dualistic idea that there's a right and a wrong, that's a construction of a conceptual mind. You know, in nature, there's really no such thing as right or wrong. There's just what's happening. That's what nature is. It isn't right and wrong is something that a language-based mind constructs. The idea of right and wrong. How about one more thing before we go on? Anything else from the guided sit that seems useful to bring up? Interesting to bring up? Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's really the crux of the problem, isn't it? And so the, the interesting thing is, you know, this, this sort of, the hell of perfection creeps in everywhere, you know? We just, we, we really don't like um, being a conditioned mind or a conditioned heart. A mind or heart that's been conditioned by these wounds in basically ineffective or counterproductive ways, right? Because we've been wounded without a lot of wisdom. And so then our reaction isn't very skillful to the pain that we've inevitably bumped into in life or run into in life. So we have all these conditioned patterns. And then if we're fortunate enough, like you described so well, Marianne, we begin to see it. We, We begin to be more honest about it. Maybe we even begin to tell ourselves better stories about it, more honest stories about it instead of, you know, really uh, hurtful stories like blaming others or blaming, thinking we're bad. But we're telling stories that have much more to do with, well, given the causes and conditions, of course it's this way. It couldn't be other than this way given the different forces that were at play. So it's like this now. And yet what persists in the mind is this idea that the messiness of life is somehow inherently bad. So, and it, in the way, there's some truth to it. This is subtle because if it weren't subtle, we wouldn't make this mistake over and over again. Which is, because the heart hurts, we assume there's a problem. Or we assume that the problem is with the place or the problem is with the conditions that are showing up. And in a sense, there's some truth to that, but we misidentify what the problem is. The problem is the idea that I can't be happy until I get away from it. And the liberation is realizing, like, what what happens with full submission to the messiness, to the neediness of this heart, the loneliness of this heart, the reactivity of this heart. Think about moments of real intimacy in relationship with a friend or family member or partner. And some of the, it seems like to me, that some of the uh, most healing and um, enlivening, liberating moments are when we meet each other, meet another human being, um, not afraid, not needing to be different than we are, and not needing them to be different than they are, and and not confused by the conditioning. Because it's like instead of seeing your limitations, I'm seeing your heart not clinging, not having a problem, not pathologizing the conditioning of your mind. You know, and you're seeing that in me. And that's that's a really beautiful moment between two people where we don't have to pretend that the mind heart is condition isn't conditioned like it's conditioned 
that we're not neurotic in the ways that we're not. If we don't, we can put down that weight of not having to pretend that we're better than we are. We're just a hungry beast who, when you know no one's looking, acts like we act when no one's looking. <laughs> you know, and we can be that way with another person, and we give them permission to be the way they are. And so then we really get to see these conditioned patterns for what they are. They're impersonal. They're there. They're real, as real as anything is real. But they're not self. They're they're impersonal, and we can be really close. Because now, what's 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 in the way of being close? We don't have any sort of self-protective stance going on. So that's where we're going with the practice. And and if our personality gets transformed in the process, and we tend to be less neurotic, great. I think that's great. You know to learn how to transcend patterns that aren't very skillful is a really great side effect of the liberating path that we're on. But this path is not about coming up with a perfect personality. Your personality may get better, in a sense, you know, like not cause as much harm, not be as neurotic. But what's really liberating isn't having a perfect personality What's really liberating is understanding that the personality isn't self. So I don't need to be afraid of it, but I don't have to believe it either. So when neurotic patterns arise, I'm not afraid of those neurotic patterns, but I'm not also believing that I have to act them out just because they're arising here in my heart and my mind. Anything else about that before we move on? And that's kind of where we're going in tonight's talk. And um, you might want to take a look at John Wellwood's um, article in Shambhala Sun that I'll be quoting from tonight. So just to review um, the uh, principles, the working draft of principles for wholesome relating. And if you think of others that should be in this list of five it was just my first run. I'm kind of hoping to keep refining it over the years. So some of the topics we've already discussed, I'm just going to go through them quickly because I think it will help us as we look at relationships, intimate relationships or um, important relationships as a spiritual crucible where the temperature gets hot and there's a coming together and an exposure in that the sort of the heat and the intensity of those interactions where we can learn something. So we learn that relationships aren't a thing, but they're something that's evolving or changing. It's a dynamic or a process. So we simplistically think of a relationship as, like, I have this relationship solid with this person, and I have this other relationship with this other person. But honestly, we know they're much more fluid than that. that. And that the other, the second point, we recognize that actually we're relating to our subjective experience, our own projections. That's what the relationship, that's what we're relating to. And so part of the honesty, part of the waking up process is realizing that we're relating to our ideas. Now, it doesn't mean that the ideas we have, the projections we have, aren't related to something Clearly, they're related to a lot of things. And it's even appropriate to say they're related to you 
in some way, but the fact is we're relating to our projections, our subjective experience. The third point was that so much of our activity of relating is trying to get something pleasant and get away from things that are unpleasant. So we're using each other, all of our relationships, to try to manage what we think is the most important thing, which is our experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And you really pick this up with relationships, people you're around a lot, and all the little sneaky ways we manipulate the interaction to feel better or to get rid of what's irritating us. It's just so interesting how, you know, we're basically using all objects of our experience to take care of this very primitive, primitive or fundamental or basic desire for pleasant and fear of unpleasant. Now, I don't think relationships are limited to that. I think they can go beyond that when we're both really honest about that about part of the conditioning we bring to relationships is this very basic neediness for pleasantness and the need to get away or manage at least the unpleasantness to some degree. And then the fourth is, given that, you know, we can use our relationships as teachers. And the fifth point, is just seeing how we tend to replicate our relationships all over the place. So the patterns, like the basic grievance pattern, then tends to get reestablished in other places. This is really that experience of samsara, how you know, the way that we relate confuses the mind we, and we make the same choices over and over again. So we keep replicating the experience of stress, the mind being confused by the experience of stress, being confused by stress, we do the same thing over again. Relate, try to fix our problems in ways that are stressful, being confused by the stress, wanting to address the stress, but addressing the stress in ways or coming from a place where we're confused because the stress itself is distorting the mind. And we're always dealing with the external. There's an interesting story from the suttas where the, there's a, in some translations it's a grandfather and granddaughter and others it's just the, the master and the student. And they're acrobats, some sort of bamboo sort of acrobat act. And... Uh, the master, the older guy, said to the apprentice or the or his granddaughter, you know, you look after me, my assistant, and I'll look after you. Thus, with us looking after one another, guarding one another, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. That being said, the assistant said to the bamboo acrobat, that will not do at all, master. You look after yourself, Master, and I will look after myself. Thus, with each of us looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, 
will show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down from the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. And the Buddha was using this as an example, and he says to his students, just like the assistant said to her master, I will look after myself, so should you, practitioners. Practice the establish of mindfulness. You should also practice the establish of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks at oneself. And how does one look after others? By looking at oneself, after oneself, by practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others? By patience, non-harming, loving kindness and caring for others. Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others. And looking after others, one looks at, after oneself. So the Buddha is saying here, you know, I think, I mean, my interpretation, and I've talk, uh, heard Andy Olensky talk about this sutta too, it, that it's really about understanding the relevance of seeing what's going on in our own heart. You know how it is. I see this in myself a lot, you know, often with my wife, Wen, where it's like I'm upset, I'm feeling some pain, but my instinct is to solve it by talking about what's going on in her instead of looking at what's going on in me. And this, I think, is really pervasive, externalizing the cause of our suffering. And that's really that first um, principle is understanding that the heart of the, the first and the second really, that the heart of relating is something that's going on in here. It's a process and that process is here and that process is relating to something here too, my idea of you, which is here. So there's an internal process that's relating to a projection, which is part of the internal process of the mind and heart and body. It's all here. Of course, we're doing it here together in a sense, and it matters that we're doing it here together, but we really have to own that the dynamic is right here in our heart. It's like an interesting koan. Can somebody make us suffer? I mean, it seems like the obvious answer is, yeah, people can, people are, can be quite upsetting and disturbing and make us suffer. But it's a really good question or reflection to, like when somebody is causing us to get upset, to ask, not in a, you know, sort of a, you're not supposed to be upset, kind of wagging of the finger, but like a real curiosity. Is it actually possible for somebody else to upset me or to cause me suffering? And it really has to do like what what is our understanding, our experience of suffering. And to understand suffering, we have to understand its causes. Suffering is not just the pain. Suffering is the whole process. It's an unfolding process. Because what makes suffering unbearable isn't the moment of pain. It's the feeling trapped by the pain. That it's, I can't get away with it. 
we would be pretty much okay if there was just a sharp pain and then it's over. That it's the not being in control, like they do these terrible experiments with animals too in terms of understanding stress. And it's the unpredictability of the pain that's so debilitating for the rats or whatever the the tortured animals they're working with in the laboratories. You know, if if an animal can predict the pain, know it's going to happen, know why it's going to happen, oh, when I do this, then I get this little shock, they can manage. I mean, it's so stressful. But when it's not seemingly not related to anything, it's really debilitating for living beings. So to the degree we can understand suffering, see, we want to understand it, but we're looking in the wrong way. So to the degree that we understand suffering, it's so liberating. The Buddha says this exactly. He says, understanding the causes of suffering, not seeing the causes of suffering is the cause of suffering. Understanding suffering is the path to freedom. So there's a whole spectrum of how we in relationship with others, how we um, experience this. And we'll move on now in the weeks ahead. Uh, Next week we'll look at these, sort of the general shape of these patterns in our mind. We'll look at the Buddhist personality type. So you might want to read another thing that Kay scanned last week that's up on our webpage is the chapter from Sharon Salzberg's book, Hard as Wide as the World. And it's just on personality types. It's just like five pages. And it's just a simple description from the, some of the Buddhist text on the basic three personality types, a greedy type, aversive type, and deluded type. Now, there are more sophisticated models. Some of you, I don't really know the Enneagram, but some of you know it well. And there are others, too. That, But it's just... Uh, a convenience to more quickly recognizing these basic conditioned patterns. So we can more likely see that they're impersonal. They're real in the sense that anything's real. And we need to be responsible for recognizing them and understanding how they move. That's our responsibility. And understanding them means understanding that they're there, that they arise when conditions are however, you know, whatever the trigger might be, but that they're natural, it's a natural pattern that's been conditioned in by the conditioning forces that this mind met with in life. We don't need to add a story that it's me because it's just not necessary. It doesn't actually help at all to have any additional story about these conditioned patterns but just to understand what they are, how they work, what triggers them, what happens when there is identification or they're acted out, what happens when they're just felt and seen and allowed to be what they are. So we'll move on to these, you know, different types of relationships that we have in the second half of the class. But for the next few more weeks, we're we're looking at the underlying structure and one thing that Wellwood talks about that we've talked about in different places here 
is just the spectrum, like to really understand that sometimes our experience appears to be very dense. And he calls this relating ego to ego. And you might think about this as, like if I'm relating to Casey, it's when I'm in that more dense place, it's, it's not really me relating to Casey. It's a particular conditioned pattern that has its own co- kind of uh, cohesion. It has its own particular shape. In a way, it's a person. But this person is, you know, it's like a tape. It has its own pattern, its own integrity, and it's relating to Casey's pattern, you know, his egoic pattern, you know, whatever. That's just one, you know, the ego is made up of many cohesive patterns. But there's a real ignorance. There's no space or understanding what's going on. It's just a reactive pattern meeting another reactive pattern and just doing whatever those two reactive patterns do when they meet. Sometimes the reactive patterns are really in sync, you know, and then we become a mob together and we go out and, you know, act out our mob-like mentality or we become bros, you know, and we we do what bros do or whatever. But but the thing, the, the important thing of that more dense way is there's no space of understanding that understands this conditioned pattern is arising and it's like this. It's either skillful or it's unskillful or mixed. There's no sense of that. It's just a blind pattern or an ignorant, not aware pattern connecting with another one. And you see that a lot, I mean, in the world and politics and and there's a lot of, uh, it can be, those patterns can be manipulated in really destructive ways. And then he talks about person to person. So this would be where there's a little light or a little space in the mind. So I'm relating to Marianne, but I have a sense that, you know, I, me, are these different emotional, conditioned, social patterns of re- ways of relating. And when I connect with Marianne, the situation and who she is and her patterns, they're drawing out of me and, you know, whatever, bringing up my own patterns. And my patterns are bringing out hers. And it's this complex dance. And I'm sort of drowning, but I'm staying just above. So I'm recognizing that there's a lot going on here. I'm feeling a lot. I could easily make a mistake. I want to be careful, you know, what I'm doing with my energy. Ooh, do I believe that emotion? Is that is that about this situation, that fear? Or is that some old fear that's just getting triggered in this situation? Do I really need to be afraid here or not? Do I really need this from this person? Or is that just this more underlying sense of lack and need that's not really specific to this interaction that I'm having right now? So Wellwood would call that person to person. And then he has being to being is the third stage where, of course, these conditioned patterns never, I don't think, cease existing, right? Because they're there. But now in this stage, you would say that there's less, very little ignorance. So these conditioned patterns, whatever does get triggered, there's no identification with the movement of emotion So it's just to play a movement of energy. There's a lot of freedom in the interaction, not sticky in a way. 
And so you can think we can all think of situations or moments when it felt like a free movement. And it doesn't mean, this is the interesting thing, like uh, maybe you've seen this in relationships. I mean, this comes up with sexual energy a lot. We'll talk about that the last couple of weeks, hopefully. But just a, you know, one example of that is you can be with somebody and having a really beautiful moment with a lot of freedom, uh, uh, just the natural intimacy. And then because we are sexual beings, you know, it can get triggered, that attraction or whatever it might be in a moment. And we can react to it like, oh, I shouldn't have that feeling with this person, right? And get really tight about it. Or that would be the middle stage, person to person. Like we're trying to handle the different things that are getting triggered and we're feeling personal, personally responsible for managing the different emotions and feelings and whatever attractions that get triggered. But if we're in that more refined place, that sort of more grounded place, then as that sexual attraction is arising, there's not any confusion by it. Like the wisdom in the mind understands that's just sexual attraction. And it just moves. And there's no identification with it. No sort of taking a hold of it. So it's just a movement of energy. The mind understands what it is and what it isn't. Like it isn't something that has to be identified with. It isn't something that we need to be afraid of either. So not afraid of it, but also not feeling like, I need this person. I need this sexual interaction with this person. Or I want this sexual interaction. Or if only I had this sexual experience with this person, then, you know, whatever. Things would be great. And it's true with all kinds of, you know, I just use that because it's the most, you know, can feel the most dangerous or inappropriate, you know, the different times that sexual energy might arise because being sexual beings, they can arise, those feelings can arise in very culturally inappropriate moments. But is that because we're evil? You know? Because there's a lot of suffering in the world when we draw that conclusion, (laughs) you know, that sexual energy is somehow evil. And there's a lot of suffering in the world when people act out their sexual energy without a sense of whether it's appropriate in this situation. So much suffering at both ends of that spectrum. So this is something to look at, these three stages. And in other classes, we've used the the ice, water, vapor image for these three stages. Like the dense place is like we're ice, you know. And there's not a lot of, when we're just conditioned patterns, living our life out of one conditioned pattern and then some other condition pattern gets triggered and now that's dominant and now we're living out of that condition pattern. And each time, each moment when we're in that dense place, it's like we're in ice. There's no nimbleness, no space that understands, hey, that's just a condition pattern where the mind is trapped by it. And then the person stage, it's more like water. You know, it's not perfectly free but there's more fluidity, there's more chance to learn how to be skillful, how to avoid being unskillful. And then the last, the being to being, as John Wellwood calls it, it's like vapor. There's a lot of space, a lot of freedom. Not There's not friction 
in those moments, there's very little friction. The relationship, the moment, the way of relating is really characterized by the freedom. I wanted to read this. This is from the very end of uh, Wellwood's book. In his, he has some notes for the different chapters. And in um, note number 46, maybe it's on page 46, um, he's talking about spiritual bypass. I think it's a good to bring up because this comes up a lot in all spiritual places, you know, places like common ground or Buddhist practice, where we have a lot of ideas about what a good way of relating looks like. And so we want to just go right there. Even if it's not what we feel, we suppress or repress that and we act as if we're equanimous. Or we act as if, you know, we really believe in the idea of oneness, of merging and meeting each other in this very beautiful place of love that doesn't, not affected by these gross things like age differences or sexual orientation or, you know, class differences or racial differences or whatever it might be. We have this idea that we should be able to connect. And, and we, those ideas can be quite strong and we impose it on the moment, basically. And, uh, and inevitably it will start to stink and we'll feel so betrayed because we worked really hard at, uh, at imagining something and then inevitably when we realize it wasn't what we imagined, we feel betrayed. And either we blame it on somebody or we start to mistrust our own heart. Like, how could I be so stupid? And this is like a classic experience in romantic love where... We really, it really felt like, you know, like heaven on earth. The, the falling in love, the being in love. It just felt so beyond or the weight because in the moments before the falling in love, it, there was so much tension in anticipation of the time we found the right person, the one who was meant for us. And then, we do seemingly find that person and of course we want to believe that this person is the one and we don't want to notice any evidence that contradicts that. And then eventually we can't help but see that it's just a human being. And it's, it's really painful. There's a lot, I mean, we all know there's a lot of suffering in this area. This is what he says about spiritual bypass. The attempt to use spiritual ideas and practices to avoid dealing with emotional, unfinished business, notably our woundedness around love, usually has disastrous consequences, especially in the West, frequently leading to the psychological imbalance and destructive behavior. My term for this kind of disassociation and denial is spiritual bypassing. Often we deal with our disconnection from love through one of two extremes. So listen, see which one is more likely for you. Emotional denial, trying to rise above our wounding through worldly achievement or spiritual transcendence. And he has in parentheses a popular male choice. 
(laughs) Or emotional fixation, becoming endlessly preoccupied with relationship as a source of all happiness, in parentheses, a popular female choice. In this book, I'm proposing a middle way between these two extremes. Through appreciating the relative significance of personal love, while also recognizing that it can never contribute to an absolute ease and satisfaction. There can be no doubt that healthy relationships contribute to human happiness. Yet this happiness ultimately arises from our capacity to connect what is with what is most real and true within us, which a loving relationship can help put us in touch with. Which is really this whole idea of a spiritual crucible is learning what it's not what the relationship or relating is not about. It's not about somebody saving us or relationship saving us or getting love even from another human being. Even though it seems that way. I mean, I can think of moments when I felt really loved and they felt, they seemed like it was really healing, the love I seemed to be getting from another person. But, you know, when I really contemplate that experience deeply, once again, I realized that the external, like that person sending their love to me, caring about me or taking care of me, it helped me, it sort of like changed an attitude in me. Like, I mean, just in simplistic terms, maybe I'm lovable, maybe I'm okay, maybe I don't have to hate myself. I mean, that's a big shift, but that shift is happening in me. So it doesn't mean that it, the shift in my understanding wasn't related to that person really showing up for me, holding me, being with me or whatever. But the change, the shift happened here. So we want to keep that in mind. So I would have loved to have walked through this article, Intimate Relationships as a Spiritual Crucible, but... You can read it at home. So it's on our webpage. I really recommend it. It's not that many pages. And, you know, he has a lot of sort of lofty language, but basically I think it's great stuff. I'll just give you a little teaser and then I'll open it up for discussion. He quotes, just because it's so provocative. So just remember, I, you know, sometimes it's good to be provocative just to stir things up, but don't, it's like we need, Sometimes we need spiritual medicine to break through the crust of our ideas, like we have romantic ideas about love or relationships. So who better than Trumpa Rinpoche? I'm not sure. Maybe uh, Wellwood was a student of Trumpa Rinpoche. He quotes him a lot in his writings. Um, it wouldn't surprise it me. And I think he's also done a lot of Advaita Vedanta work, the sort of yogic tradition, the non-dual yogic tradition. But he's talking about relationship as a charnel ground or a crucible, right? And he quotes Trumpa Rinpoche that use that metaphor, you know, relationship as a charnel ground. He described the charnel ground as that, quote, great graveyard in which the complexities of samsara and nirvana lie buried. And then later, it's a place to die and be born equally at the same time. It's simply our raw and rugged nature, the ground where we constantly puke and fall down, constantly make a mess, 
We are constantly dying and we are constantly giving birth. We are eating in the charnel ground, sitting in it, sleeping on it, and having nightmares on it. Yet, it does not try to hide its truth about reality. There are corpses lying all over the place, loose arms, loose hands, loose internal organs, and flowing hairs all over the place. Jackals and vultures are roaming about, each one devising its own scheme for getting the best piece of flesh. Now that's not normally how we think about relationships. (laughs) But it cuts through a lot of the BS about relationships. Because there is something very primal about relationships. I mean, when you look at other mammals, they are completely dependent on staying in the the group, you know, the herd mammals. They've got to stay with their clan, with their group. Otherwise, they die. And it's messy in a lot of ways. It's intense in a lot of ways. Why would we be so different than that? He goes on, he says, many of us have a cartoon-like notion of relational bliss. And then I'm skipping a little bit. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche suggests that if we can work with the raw and rugged situation of the charnel ground, quote, then some spark or sympathy or compassion, some giving in or opening can begin to take place. Right? And this is just true generally with the spiritual path. There really isn't any awakening, any insight, any transformation until the heart has actually connected with the way it is. That's the prerequisite. We have to show up. We have to see it. Any idealism or any denial gets in the way of freedom or understanding, the deepening of understanding. And I'll just finish this sentence or this uh, paragraph rather. The, um, the chaos that takes place in your neurosis is the only home ground that you can build the mandala of awakening on. Right? We have to meet the experience of our life. Or we have to meet the experience of our relationships. That's where the change happens. So I'll leave it here. We have about eight minutes. be nice to hear from a few folks your own examples of spiritual crucibles that you were edifying, transforming, questions you have about what I've said tonight? What comes to mind? Yeah, Caleb. But the thing is, we can know some things. We can know that when bad things happen, it's lawful. And we can know that when uh, pain, emotional pain, let's say, when that arises, it's lawful. And 
And given that it's lawful, we can be aware of the territory. You know, we can um, not be surprised. So we don't know when the supporting conditions are going to arise, but we can see that we can see the supporting conditions arising. And so then we know, oh yeah, oh yeah, this person is rolling their eyes at me. Or this person isn't returning my text messages. You know, and oh yeah, oh yeah, so there's that that pain of insecurity right there. Oh yeah. And it's not a surprise because we've really studied. So that fear of emotional pain or relation relational pain, then a healthy human being, somebody who's not overwhelmed by suffering in life. So a healthy human being would want to understand, okay, there is this pain, this fear of pain, and it is stressful, like you said, Caleb. So let's see what to do about this. How can I ease the stress of the fear of having this pain where I can really understand the causes and conditions of it? so as not to be surprised and to normalize it and to understand that it's nature and not me being bad or the world being bad or this other person being bad. Because, you know, things like anger or fear, they really, we need an external object to hate or to be afraid of. But when we really understand things in more nuanced, subtle way, it's just, it's all always nature. There really isn't this bad guy that we hate or that we fear. It doesn't mean that painful things don't happen, but we can't actually externalize. I mean, we can, but not, not when wisdom is operating. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, Anne. What was that last thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
or maybe that's the expression of vulnerability. So maybe you, maybe what you're saying is that a more honest acknowledgement of vulnerability, because all that defensiveness, of course, is the exact expression of vulnerability. You know, the way that we close ourselves off or the way we define each other is how we inefficiently protect, seemingly protect ourselves, but actually end up doing the opposite. You know, what we run away from becomes bigger and meaner, you know, seemingly bigger and meaner. 